Stephenson had promised there would be enough animals to supplement their rations, but when the cold weather came, the animals disappeared. Pack ice closed around the island, sealing them in. They fought to survive the year, holding out for the ship that was supposed to pick them up. The temperature routinely dropped to negative 56 degrees. Welcome. Gather around the campfire and let me tell you a story. Today, I'm going to be talking about two incredible stories of soul survivors, Julianne Kopka and Ada Blackjack Johnson. On the surface, the stories of Julianne Kopka and Ada Blackjack are very different. One survived the brutal cold and barren tundra of a Siberian island, and the other found her way through the sopping heat and hidden dangers of the Amazon. One was desperate to reunite with her heartbroken father, and the other with her sick son. Fifty years apart and over 7,000 miles away from each other, these two women both were the sole survivor of terrible disasters, and both of them used every bit of their strength, smarts, and grit to make it through these terrible tests. In the late 1940s, two German scientists were earning their doctoral degrees at the University of Kiel in the German city of the same name. Hans Wilhelm Kopka was a biologist, and Maria Emil Anav Milkulich Radecki, I know my Polish ancestors are crying right now, that pronunciation, was an ornithologist, a type of scientist specializing in birds. At the time, they were both studying zoology, but they found more than just an education. They found love and also a partner who shared their dream of moving to the remote Peruvian jungle to conduct research, which is a bit of a niche interest for your dating profile. Together they moved there, and they married in 1950. There, the two of them began their dream life, studying the animals of the country, particularly birds, and they co-published a number of scientific articles. While living in Miraflores, a suburb outside of the capital of Lima, they had their only child and future badass, Julianne Margaret B.T. Kopcha, on October 10th, 1954. Hans Wilhelm and Maria managed a visitor center called Casa Humboldt until 1967, and they also worked for the Javier Prado Museum of Natural History in Lima. In 1968, they wanted to get even closer to the action, and they closed the visitor center. Julianne's childhood then took an unusual Bindi the Jungle Girl style turn. The Kopcha family moved to a remote part of the Amazon rainforest to create a research center called Penguana, where they could study animal life in the low-lying parts of the rainforest. Julianne lived there for a year and a half, homeschooled by her parents and exploring with them. Hans Wilhelm and Maria were able to instill in her the same love and passion that they had for biology, which is very lucky considering I have a feeling Teenage Rebellion would have been a little bit exacerbated if your parents took you to live alone with them in the jungle. But eventually, the Peruvian authorities forced the coaches to send Julianne back to formal schooling at Deutsche School Lima Alexander von Humboldt. She graduated two days before Christmas, 1971. Her mother had wanted to leave a few days earlier to go home to Panguana to be with Hans Wilhelm for Christmas. 
There's no place like home for the holidays, even if your home is a remote Amazonian research hut. But Julianne, who was now 17, wanted to go to her graduation ball and the ceremony. The pair decided to fly out on Christmas Eve day so Julianne could go to the events and they could still be back in time for Christmas. There was only one flight left, with Laneas Aires Nacionales SA, abbreviated as LANSA. The airline had a bad reputation and had already had two plane crashes, and Hans Wilhelm told them not to trust it. But as Julianne stated later, quote, We knew the airline had a bad reputation, but we desperately wanted to be with my father for Christmas, so we figured it would be all right, unquote. Many of the passengers were Peruvian students in similar situations going home. Julianne and her mother boarded Lanza Flight 508, which was a Lockheed L-188 Electra, if there are any plane nerds out there, at Jorge Chavez International Airport in Lima, right before noon on Christmas Eve. The plane was seven hours late, and people were annoyed. Its destination was Iquitos, another city in Peru, with one stop in Pulcalpa. There were 92 people on board, including six crew members. It was a quick flight, supposed to be only an hour. Everything went smoothly at the beginning. Then, at 21,000 feet above sea level, about 40 minutes after takeoff, the plane entered a severe thunderstorm. Not wanting to delay passengers who were traveling for the holidays, the pilots pressed on. They flew in extreme turbulence for 20 minutes. Then the plane was struck by lightning. A fuel tank ignited and the right wing caught fire, and then both wings started to come off the body of the plane. The pilots tried to level out the plane, but systems failed. It dove, and they tried to pull up, but the fire and the force caused the right wing and most of the left to tear completely off. The plane broke up in midair. Some sources actually describe it as disintegrating. Later, authorities would say the cause of the crash was, quote, intentional flight into hazardous weather conditions, unquote. Julianne described the experience, quote, There was very heavy turbulence and the plane was jumping up and down. Parcels and luggage were falling from the locker. There were gifts, flowers, and Christmas cakes flying around the cabin. When we saw lightning around the plane, I was scared. My mother and I held hands, but we were unable to speak. Other passengers began to cry and weep and scream. After about ten minutes, I saw a very bright light on the outer engine on the left. My mother said very calmly, That is the end. It's all over. Those were the last words I ever heard from her. Unquote. The plane and the passengers fell two miles down deep into the Amazon rainforest. A fall of about 48 feet is generally fatal for humans, or 0 .009 of a mile. Lanza 508 still holds the Guinness World Record for the highest death toll caused by lightning in flight. Julianne said, quote, The plane jumped down and went into a nosedive. It was pitch black and people were screaming, and then the deep roaring of the engines filled my head completely. Suddenly, the noise stopped, and I was outside the plane. I was in a freefall, strapped to my seat bench and hanging head over heels. The whispering of the wind was the only noise that I could hear. I felt completely alone. I could see the canopy of the jungle spinning towards me. 
Then I lost consciousness and remember nothing of the impact. Later I learned that the plane had broken into pieces about two miles above the ground. I woke the next day and looked up into the canopy. The first thought I had was, I survived an air crash, unquote. Julianne also later said, I was definitely strapped in when I fell. It must have turned and buffered the crash, otherwise I wouldn't have survived. Maybe it was the fact that I was attached to a whole row of seats. It was rotating, much like the helicopter, and that might have slowed the fall. Also, the place I landed had very thick foliage, and that might have lessened the impact. I didn't wake up till 9 o'clock the next morning. I know this because my watch was still working so I must have been unconscious the whole afternoon and the night. When I came to, I was alone. Just me and my row of seats. Unquote. Julianne suffered a broken collarbone, a deep gash to her right arm, an eye injury, and a concussion. Partially blinded and still strapped to her seat, she searched for her mother who had been sitting next to her, but wasn't able to find her. It's believed that her mother survived for several days, but was too severely injured to move. Up to 14 other passengers may have survived the initial crash, but died waiting to be rescued, as the heavy jungle canopy prevented search planes from seeing the crash site. Julianne was no ordinary 17-year-old. She had lived in the Amazon for a year and a half and picked up some survival skills. She once described the rainforest by saying, "'It's not the green hell that the world always thinks.'" Julianne had been taught by her father that if you follow water, it will lead to civilization. So she gathered her strength and waded through the Nihai River for ten days. Her only food was some candy that had fallen from the plane. She was wearing the hardy expedition outfit of a sleeveless mini-dress and one sandal. She had lost her glasses in the fall and had to use her one-shoed foot to feel out the ground in front of her. She could hear search planes overhead, but couldn't see them through the thick trees. The river was full of the friendly creatures, piranhas, devil rays, and crocodiles. Julianne said she wasn't afraid of the crocodiles because she knew they didn't attack humans. She was concerned about the snakes in the leaves, so the river was safer. It was hot and rainy during the day and cold at night. Julianne said, quote, I had a cut on my arm. And after a few days, I could feel there was something in it. I took a look, and a fly had laid her eggs in the hole. It was full of maggots. I was afraid I would lose my arm. Later, after I was rescued, it was treated, and more than 50 maggots were found inside. I still wonder how so many maggots could have fit in the little hole. It was no bigger than a one-euro coin." Unquote. Her knowledge of birds actually added to her fear as she recognized the call of vultures that had been drawn to the disaster. She slowly found more victims of the crash, which had fallen with such a hard impact that they were stuck two feet into the dirt. Wanting to ignore it, but also wanting to make sure they weren't her mother, she poked their shoes and saw that the toes had nail polish. Her mother didn't wear nail polish. Julianne wrote, quote, By the tenth day, I couldn't stand properly, and I drifted along the edge of a larger river I had found. I felt so lonely, like I was in a parallel universe far away from any human being. I thought I was hallucinating when I saw a really large boat. When I went to touch it and realized it was real, it was like an adrenaline shot. 
but there was a small path into the jungle where I found a hut with the palm leaf roof, an outboard motor, and a liter of gasoline. I had a wound on my upper right arm, and it was infested with maggots about one centimeter long. I remember our dog had the same infection, and my father had poured kerosene in it, so I sucked the gasoline out and put it in the wound. The next day, I heard the voices of several men outside. It was like hearing the voices of angels, unquote. The men were shocked when they found Julianne asleep in their hut and believed that she was a half-dolphin, half-blonde white woman from mythology, a water goddess. She spoke to them in Spanish, and the men treated her injuries as much as they could. They had a boat with them that Julianne hadn't taken when she arrived because she didn't want to steal. The men, who had been working nearby as loggers, took her in the canoe for seven hours to the town of Tornavista. A pilot there volunteered to fly her to Pulcalpa, ironically, the original stopover for the flight. There she was reunited with her father and recovered. Quote, He could barely talk and in the first moments we just held each other, she said. For the next few days he frantically searched for news of my mother. Unquote. Julianne helped lead authorities to the crash site, where they found her mother's body and the other victims. On January 13, 1972, 90 of the bodies were recovered and 52 were identified. Julianne received hundreds of letters from strangers about her ordeal, and she said, It was so strange. Some of the letters were simply addressed, Julianne, Peru, but they still all found their way to me, unquote. After the rescue, Hans Wilhelm and Julianne moved back to Germany understandably wanting to put some distance between them and Peru. Hans Wilhelm exemplified the idea of throwing yourself back into your work, publishing a massive 1,684-page biological manuscript called Die Liebesformen, or Life Forms, the basis for a universally valid biological theory, published in 1971. The head of the Department of Ornithology at the Natural History Museum in New York said of the piece, The number of topics covered in this monumental work is simply astonishing. Hans Wilhelm then became a professor at the Zoological Institute and Museum of the University of Hamburg. Julianne graduated from her parents' alma mater, the University of Kiel, with a degree in biology in 1980. She got her doctorate in mammalogy, specializing in bats, and conducted research back in Peru. For the past 30 years, Julianne has been living near Munich with her husband, Anrich, and now goes by the name Julianne Diller. She's the librarian of the Bavarian State Collection of Zoology in Munich, and she published her autobiography, When I Fell from the Sky, in 2011, and won the Corian Literature Prize. In 2019, the Peruvian government gave her the Order of Merit for Distinguished Services and the degree of Grand Officer for her scientific work, her contribution to creating the Penguana Conservation Area, and her work benefiting the quality of life for the Ashaninka people in the area, and her devotion to connect the countries of Germany and Peru. Two movies have been made about her experience— the first was the partly fictionalized Italian film Il Miracoli Aconado Ancora in 1974, released in English as Miracles Still Happen. It was low budget and apparently not very good. In 1998, acclaimed director Werner Herzog made the film Wings of Hope, which in German has the much more aggressive name of Julianne's Freefall into the Jungle. 
Herzog was actually supposed to be on the doomed flight, but his plans changed at the last minute. He took Julianne back to the crash site to make the film, which she described as being therapeutic. They took a flight along the route and sat in the same row of seats that she had during the crash. The two of them found large pieces of debris, walked back through the river she traveled, and returned to where she was found. One of the men who rescued her is also in the film. Herzog said he wanted to make the film ever since he missed the flight, but he had trouble finding Julianne, who avoided the media. He found her through the German priest who had performed Maria's funeral. As for the Lanza Company, Lanza Airline had bought this type of plane after a different model, the Lockheed L-749 Constellation, crashed in 1966. This Electra crash was the second one of its kind just in the Lanza fleet and killed over 90 people within a single year, and they decided to stop using Electras after Flight 508. Lanza's flight permit had already been suspended in 1970 because of one of those crashes, but they were granted an extension to fly until December 31st, a week after the crash that Julianne was on. They stopped flying after this crash entirely, and in 1972, their permit was rightfully permanently canceled. Over their eight years of operation, Lanza had three plane crashes that killed 241 people. In brighter news, a species of Peruvian lava lizard, Microlophus copicorum, was named for Julianne's parents, and there are five bird species named for Maria. Today, Panguana Research Station is still in operation. In 2011, it was officially named a conservation area by the Peruvian government. Over 180 scientific papers have been published about the station's research, and Julianne has been the head of the station since her father passed away in 2000. Panguana also supports a nearby school for the children of the indigenous Ashaninka group. The station can now house up to 15 people at a time and was recently equipped with satellite internet. Their protected area has increased from less than three-fourths of a square mile to now almost four square miles. If you want to support Panguana, you can go to their website, which I will link in the description of this episode. Now we're going to jump across the equator and about 50 years into the past to talk about Ada Blackjack Johnson. Ada Blackjack was born in 1898 near Solomon, Alaska, as Ada Delatuck. She was a member of the Inupiat ethnic group, which is indigenous to the area. The town of Solomon is 30 miles east of Nome, which is the closest town. It was originally settled by the native Alaskans of the Fish River tribe as a summer fishing camp, which later became permanent. The year after Ada was born, the gold rush hit the town, and it became a mining camp with thousands of people. Giant dredges surrounded the town. Saloons, a post office, a ferry dock, and a railroad stop popped up. By 1904, it was the supply center for the miners on the peninsula around the Solomon River. But after the boom, the miners mostly left, and it became a primarily native village once again. The railroad was supposed to be extended, but the company building it went bankrupt in 1907. In 1913, a massive tidal storm destroyed the railroad with 40-foot waves, and the 1918 flu killed many of its citizens. 
1939, those who were left moved to a different site with the same town name. The town survived through the 1940s and appeared on the census, and the Bureau of Indian Affairs opened a school there, but a large number of families moved during World War II. In 1956, the school shut down, and families with children left to find educational opportunities elsewhere. The town faded off the census. In the 2010 census, Solomon, Alaska did not have a single inhabitant. Today, Solomon has one road that operates seasonally, Solomon State Field Airport Airstrip, and a single bed and breakfast run by the village of Solomon Tribe that opened in 2006 in a building that was once the schoolhouse. It also features the last train to nowhere, the rusted remains of the abandoned train. That gives you an idea of how remote the place that Ada Blackjack was born into really was. When Ada was eight, her father ate spoiled meat, and Ada and her little sister had to dress him, haul him onto a dog sled, and try to bring him 30 miles to Nome, but he died during the journey. After this, Ada's mother sent her to the city, where she was raised by Methodist missionaries. She did not study traditional wilderness or survival skills that would have been helpful later in her life. She instead learned English at a third grade level, math, composition, singing, basic finances and household skills like sewing, housekeeping, and cooking European cuisine. The missionaries, as missionaries do, also instilled in her a deep religious background, which she would later fall back on during her darkest times. Her main trade was sewing but it wasn't a particularly lucrative job. It was one of the only traditional tribal skills that she developed, but she still had deep ties to her heritage. She loved the tribal stories from her childhood about the stars, but also from these stories, she gained a deep-seated fear of polar bears. Ada moved to Nome and married dog musher Jack Blackjack, I know, when she was only 16. She had three children, but only one survived, a boy named Bennett. Jack beat her regularly and starved her. Ada was a small woman. In fact, she often bought clothes in the children's section of stores, but she was tough. In 1921, her husband abandoned her on the Seward Peninsula where they lived. She had to walk 40 miles to Nome to her mother's house, carrying five-year-old Bennett. Ada was now forced into poverty. Bennett needed treatment for various illnesses, including tuberculosis, which she couldn't afford. Nome was violent, barren, and dirty, with miners and fortune seekers coming and going. She temporarily put her son in an orphanage where he could get medical care, and she started looking for work to get the money to take him back. She found some work as a seamstress for the miners, but it wasn't enough. She would never be able to save up enough to get Bennett back with the money that she was making. Then she heard of an expedition to Wrangell Island. Explorer Wilhelmur Stephenson was putting together an expedition to the uninhabited piece of land that today is Russian territory. Roald Amundsen, the Norwegian leader of the Fram expedition to the South Pole covered in episode 3, once described Stephenson as, quote, the greatest humbug alive, unquote. His reputation was damaged, and this was a chance to restore it. 
At the time, Wrangell Island had already been sighted several times by explorers and landed on and claimed by the U.S. in 1881 as New Columbia. In 1916, it was reclaimed by the Russian Empire, and this was how it was recognized by most of the world at this point. However, this apparently didn't matter to Stephenson, who wanted to re-reclaim it. He offered to claim it for Canada, and they refused to sponsor it because he had previously led a failed expedition, which I'll mention in a moment. And he then offered to claim it for Britain, who also didn't want it, so Stephenson financed it himself. He put together a team of four men, Captain Alan Crawford, who was 20, Lorne Knight, who was 28, Fred Marr, who was also 28, and Milton Gale, who was 19, and sent them to Alaska with only six months of supplies and said he'd pick them up in a year. This was no fully funded multi-year 50-man polar expedition. Crawford was a Canadian, and Knight, Marr, and Gale were Americans, and they were only slightly more prepared than Michael Scott playing Survivor Man. Soft-spoken and kind-hearted Fred Marr, with golden hair and piercing blue eyes, had left home at 18 in search of adventure and joined a whaling ship. That was where he met Stephenson and gained a hint of the Arctic fever. In 1912, Marr joined Stephenson on his failed and deeply embarrassing expedition on the ship Carluck. The ship became stuck in ice, and Stephenson abandoned most of his crew to walk to the mainland of Alaska. Marr and many others were left behind, and they struggled to reach Wrangell Island. Eleven of the 25 men died. Stephenson, who had been assumed dead, was rescued by another ship, the Polar Bear. When he was rescued, Marr was fascinated by the cars, the sounds, the stores, and the food of his home in Ohio. But you can take the explorer out of the Arctic, but you can't take the Arctic out of the explorer. In 1921, Marr left his job at Goodyear to travel with Stephenson on a speaking tour of the U.S. Along with them came Errol Lorne Knight, another young explorer who had been on the polar bear. 230 pounds and 6 feet tall, with the round red cheeks and a rough-around-the-edges charm, engaged to a young woman named Doris Jones, who visited when she could. Marr also had a girlfriend, Delphine Jones. Marr was quiet and serious. Knight was loud and boisterous. The two of them fought often, but also became friends as they warmed up the crowd and flipped sides for Stephenson. Knight enjoyed telling people that adventure was born in him, although probably not in front of Stephenson, who had once said that, quote, an adventure is a sign of incompetence, unquote. He sounds really fun at parties, and he sounds really fun at parties. Another young man joined the traveling team, a 19-year-old Milton Harvey Robert Gale, tall and sharp-featured with a quick wit and a sense of humor. His job was running the projector for Stephenson's tour, and he recorded the experience on his prized typewriter. Knight and Marr insisted that their new friend come along on the Arctic journey that they were planning. Stephenson wowed the crowds with his stories and photos. He told them, quote, Given a healthy body and a cheerful disposition, a family can now live in the North Pole as comfortably as it can in Hawaii. And also, quote, I think anyone with good eyesight and a rifle can live anywhere in the polar regions indefinitely, unquote, which is pretty easy to say when you're not actually the one going. One of the men wrote of the trip, quote, here was a chance to gratify the longing of my heart that was with me at all time. It was the wanderlust calling from the lands of the aurora, the midnight sun, 
in the wastes of ice and snow, unquote. The final member of the team was a Canadian, Alan Crawford, who was the leader of the mission. Stephenson had promised there would be enough animals to supplement their rations, but when the cold weather came, the animals disappeared. Pack ice closed around the island, sealing them in. They fought to survive the year, holding out for the ship that was supposed to pick them up. The temperature routinely dropped to negative 56 degrees. Ada was afraid of Lorne Knight. She was 100 pounds and 5 feet tall, and he was a massive and loud man who referred to her as the woman. But slowly, the group grew closer. Word spread that the little team was looking for native Alaskans to join them, including an English-speaking seamstress. Stephenson had told them to find several native families to come with them so the men could help hunt and the woman could cook and sew. They promised a wage of $50 a month, which would allow Ada to get her son back, who was now eight years old and still suffering from tuberculosis. As the details of the expedition took shape, every other Native member backed out, except for Ada. She needed the money. It was improper and uncomfortable for her to go alone with these strange men, but they promised that they would hire more Native Alaskans on the journey. But that never happened. So on September 9th, 1921, she boarded the Silver Wave ship and set sail for Wrangell. Ada later said of the trip, quote, I thought at first I would turn back, but I decided it wouldn't be fair to the boys, so I felt I had to stay, unquote. Wrangell Island was north of Siberia in the icy Chukchi Sea. It's 2,800 square miles of barren icy tundra filled with polar bears. Stephenson thought it would be a good airbase, weather station, or reindeer environment for Britain. But Britain could care less about this ice chunk. Stephenson promised that the Arctic would be friendly, but he was too busy to go with them. When the team first arrived, there was game to hunt and their supplies were full. The men were supposed to buy an Umiak hunting boat, but they thought it was too expensive and bought a much smaller one that was destroyed by a storm. If you're going to cheap out on something, it should probably not be one of your only ways to find food when you're going to be stuck somewhere for what you think is a year. But when the summer ended, so did their hunting success. Stephenson had promised there would be enough animals to supplement their rations, but when the cold weather came, the animals disappeared. Pack ice closed around the island, sealing them in. They fought to survive the year, holding out for the ship that was supposed to pick them up. The temperature routinely dropped to negative 56 degrees. Ada was afraid of Lorne Knight. She was 100 pounds and 5 feet tall, and he was a massive and loud man who referred to her as the woman. But slowly, the group grew closer. They didn't panic as their supplies drew low, as they were getting picked up soon. What the team didn't know was that the ship that had been sent for them, called the Teddy Bear, couldn't get through the ice. Stephenson had convinced Canada to pay for the rescue, from a humanitarian standpoint, but it was forced to turn around. Stephenson told the worried families of the men that they didn't need any kind of extreme rescue. It was just, quote, like if they were in some European city or an ordinary place and were merely not in the habit of communicating with you, unquote. 
they started rationing their food. After surviving another year without rescue, on January 8, 1923, Crawford and Knight decided to go in dog sleds to Siberia in search of help, but had to turn back when Knight became grievously ill. On January 28, 1923, Captain Crawford, Fred Maurer, and Milton Gale decided to go out to walk across the ice to mainland Siberia in search of help. They were never seen again. Ada stayed behind with Lorne Knight, who was dying of scurvy, and the ship's cat, Victoria. Now doing the job of all the men and herself, a newspaper later summarized her work by saying Ada was, quote, doctor, nurse, companion, servant, and huntswoman in one, unquote. Ada wrote in her diary that Knight was rude to her, his mood likely affected by his growing state of delirium, writing, quote, He never stop and think how much it's hard for women to take four man's place, to woodwork and to hunt for something to eat for him, and to do waiting to his bed, unquote. He threw things at her, told her her husband was right to abuse and abandoned her. She wrote that, quote, He mentions my children and says, No wonder your children die, you never take good care of them. He just tear me to pieces when he mentions the children I lost. This is the worst life I ever live in this world, unquote. Knight developed sores, lost his teeth, and bled from his face. She still gave him the best pieces of game and covered his feet with warm sand every day. She took care of him until June 23, 1923, when he died. She used Gail's precious typewriter to record her diary and his date of death and she wrote, quote, I had a hard time when he was dying. I never will forget that all my life. I try my best to save his life, but I can't quite save him. Unquote. Lacking the strength to move his body, she put up a wall of boxes to cover him. Then she moved into the supply tent and started strengthening the structure with driftwood. She also put a gun rack above her bed in case she was surprised by a wild animal. Polar bears were a constant threat, and she built a platform to spot them from her shelter. For the three months she was alone, Ada survived well. She hunted foxes, seals, and birds. She collected animal skins and made a boat. She used the photography equipment left behind to take photos of herself. She learned to use traps and shoot, even though she hated the rifle fire. She fussed over and mothered the cat, her only surviving companion. She worried that the isolation was driving her crazy, but she clung to hope and the promise of seeing her son, Bennett, again. One of her diary entries simply read, quote, I thank God for living, unquote. She also started developing scurvy and narrowly escaped a polar bear that took a seal she had just killed instead. But Ada was aware of the severity of her situation. She typed an informal will, quote, this very important note in case I happen to die or somebody finds that I was dead. I want Mrs. Rita McCarfity to take care of my son Bennett. My sister Rita is just as good as his own mother. I know she loves Bennett just as much as I do. I dare not my son to have stepmother. If I got any money coming from boss of this company, if $1,200 give my mother Miss Udatuk $200. If it's only $600 give her 100 Rest of it for my son. Then, on August 20th, 1923, 
703 days after she first set foot on Wrangell Island, and 50 days since Knight had died. Ada was rescued by the crew of the ship Donaldson and Captain Harold Noyce, who had been sent for her. She thought the whistle of the ship was just the wind before catching sight of it and ran down the beach in her hand-stitched reindeer jacket. The crew of the Donaldson was shocked that the men had died and at how well Ada had handled the experience, writing, quote, Blackjack mastered her environment so far that it seems likely she could have lived there another year, although the isolation would have been a dreadful experience, unquote. The Cat Victoria also survived. Ada told them, quote, There is nobody here but me. I'm all alone, unquote. Noyce wrote, quote, Even I, who had long since ceased to believe in hero worship, found myself unconsciously a little thrilled by the quality of her spirit, unquote. Ada went home to her son and to her sisters. But Noyce, a friend of Stephenson, blamed Ada and the press for Knight's death. She became a villain in the story on the doomed Wrangell Island expedition. When she arrived back in Alaska, a U.S. marshal refused to let her off the ship, insisting she must have cannibalized her companions to survive. One of her rescuers tried to tear out pages from her diary to mislead the public into thinking she had purposely let Knight die. Eventually, public opinion did shift back in her favor. Knight's family changed their mind completely, and Ada and them developed a friendship. She returned some of his belongings to them in Oregon. Knight's father tried to defend her in the media, stating, quote, I still maintain that Ada Blackjack is a real heroine and that there is nothing to justify me in the faintest belief that she did not do for Lorne all that she was able to do. I feel that I owe this statement to the public and to a poor Eskimo woman who is being wronged and is helpless to defend herself. Unquote. Called the female Robinson Crusoe, she reportedly hated the attention and the media storm around her story. She never made a penny off her fame, including from the book that Stephenson published using her diary, and Stephenson didn't pay her everything she was promised in wages, but she was able to afford to take Bennett back and bring him to Seattle to be cured of tuberculosis from her salary and money made from selling animal skins. She refused to speak to the news, and her story has been largely forgotten. Ada remarried and became Ada Blackjack Johnson and had a second son named Billy in 1924. The lost men's family continued to pressure Stephenson to search for them, but he never did, and tried to minimize his connection to the failed mission. So I want all of you to remember, Stephenson was in charge of the mission. Rumors popped up in the area about the men who had walked to Siberia being spotted, but nothing was ever confirmed. Ada and her second husband eventually divorced, and she lived in relative poverty and obscurity until the age of 85, when she died in the Pioneer Nursing Home in Palmer, Alaska, in 1983. She was buried in Anchorage Memorial Park Cemetery, next to her son Bennett, with a very small gathering of friends and family. Wrangell Island was formerly claimed by Russia, and it was used as a prison, political concentration camp, and KGB training center. Purposes befitting of an island with such a dark and blood-stained history. Ada's son Billy ordered a plaque and flew it from North Carolina to Alaska to be placed on her grave, which read, Heroin, Wrangell Island Expedition. 
Billy described his mother as follows, quote, I consider my mother, Ada Blackjack, to be one of the most loving mothers in this world and one of the greatest heroines in the history of Arctic exploration. She survived against all odds. It's a wonderful story that should not be lost of a mother fighting to survive to live so she could carry on with her son. Her story of survival in the Arctic will be a great chapter in the history of Alaska and the Arctic, unquote. A Boston Globe reporter echoed the statement, saying, quote, Some say she's the greatest heroine in Arctic history, unquote. A neighbor described her in her later years, quote, She was a quiet, prayerful little lady, not much taller than five feet and perhaps 100 pounds. She held a countenance of serenity wrapped around steely rebar, unquote. Jennifer Niven wrote a book on Ada's experience titled Ada Blackjack, A True Story of Survival in the Arctic. Peggy Caravantes wrote another account titled Marooned in the Arctic. Ada's son, Billy Johnson, was a U.S. Army private in World War II and Korea and later became an activist for the native people of Alaska. He helped found the 13th Regional Corporation, an organization that represents Alaskan natives living outside of Alaska. He worked tirelessly for this cause for almost 50 years. Billy had been working for years to get his mother recognition for her heroism. He wrote to the government of Alaska, quote, The final chapter should read that the state of Alaska recognized Ada Blackjack as the heroine of the Wrangell Island expedition. It could read that the state of Alaska had a true native heroine that participated in the early exploration of the Arctic. The state of Alaska has within it the power to write a happy ending to such a sad happening, unquote. And Alaska did. The Alaska State Legislature formally honored Ada a month after her death, on June 16, 1983, stating, quote, A small token of remembrance for a woman whose bravery and heroic deeds have gone unnoticed for so many years, unquote. A representative also added, I deeply regret that we were not able to serve Ada with this citation while she was alive, unquote. The honor read, not many Alaskans remember this soft-spoken and vital woman. In the years following her heroic feat, she was forgotten by most people who knew of her ordeal. The middle years of her life were not pleasant, although we are convinced she would have been the last to complain. We urge Alaskans to become familiar with the story of Ada Blackjack Johnson, who recently passed away in Palmer. From her story we can each gain an insight into the life and personal courage of a resident of our state who survived under unbearable circumstances, only to be forgotten by her friends and neighbors. It is our duty and our obligation to honor Ada Blackjack Johnson for her astounding courage, her spiritual strength, and her commitment to her fellow man.
If you're interested in starting your own podcast, check out Buzzsprout. I use Buzzsprout to host this show and get listed on all the major podcasting apps, find sponsors, and track statistics. If you sign up with my link, you get a $20 Amazon gift card when you upgrade to a paid plan. Let me know if you make a podcast. I'd love to follow your show. Fiverr is the perfect place to find high-quality freelancers for any budget who do everything from writing and translation, design, video editing, tutoring, programming, genealogy, souvenir collecting, and a ton of other incredible services. Check it out using the link in the description to tell them that I sent you. Thank you for supporting the show.